So I think, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, we can collaborate or we can compete and both can be healthy. But I think the thing that's really important is just making sure we, we're clear on how, how large is the true market for each of these technologies and for each of these segments and each of these players. Um, because if we make some assumptions that are wrong there, um, and that leads to some pretty unfortunate outcomes for both sectors. You know, the investors on the DRE side are, are going to flee um, and utilities are frankly going to see, you know, much of their rate base, you know, their, their most profitable and most bankable customers are going to either defect from the grid or, um, you know, cease to pay entirely, right? And then we'll see some utility death spiral um, conversations crop up and, you know, we'll, there, there's a lot of cascading effects there that I think um, both parties would benefit from, you know, integrated electrification planning, you know, ideally using, you know, some of these really cool new tools that have come out that are, are focused on not just quantifying supply or doing least cost analysis, which is which is important, but kind of only has one half of the puzzle. But the other side, which is really focused on understanding electricity demand and how do we quantify that and forecast its growth over time so that when we're talking about least cost, we really apply the appropriate solution to each customer and to their needs. That's analyst Ben Atia talking about his expected trends for the energy access sector in 2021. And this is the Power for All podcast, a forum for leaders working to end energy poverty. I'm your host, William Brent. Ben is Senior Research Analyst in the Energy Transition Practice at global consultancy Wood McKinsey. I've been following Ben's rise over the past couple of years, and he's quickly become one of the leading observers on the energy access sector. So, as part of our annual trends forecast, we asked him to look into his crystal ball and highlight some of the big levers of change he expects for 2021. As you've already heard, one of those is getting much more clarity about where utilities and private sector companies best fit in delivering access. But Ben looks also at post-pandemic recovery, the rise of CNI, how infrastructure investors will take a second look at the sector, and much more. And now, on to our conversation. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So 2020, a year that will live in infamy. Uh, a lot's happened. Uh, a lot's happened to the energy access sector. It's, it's reeling from COVID and the pandemic and the impact on not only the companies who are delivering energy access, but to some degree on the consumers who've been buying those solutions as well. So as we approach 2021 and put the year this year behind us, I'm wondering, where do we go from here? What, what's your crystal ball tell us, Ben, in terms of some of the top trends that you expect to see in 2021? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the first one, which has got to be pretty obvious, is going to be the COVID-19 recovery. And what I'm seeing is, of course, you know, that we've seen some really great um, research coming out of the IEA, uh, which is, you know, an unfortunate and sobering reality that we'll actually see some backwards progress, most likely, in um, the achievement towards SDG 7 and universal access. Uh, their estimates about 13 million people will lose access to electricity services. We'll be net 13 million people um, farther behind than we were at the beginning of last year. And that up to 100 million people who already had electricity connections, um, you know, maybe un unable to afford them due to the rise in poverty levels worldwide as a result of COVID. And then, of course, the economic consequences that have come with it. So, of course, this is a big setback for the sector. Um, but before I say anything else, I, I do just want to thank or, or acknowledge the, you know, the, just the wonderful resilience of this industry, um, of the, the investors, the, <laughs> the deskos on the ground, uh, both in the solar home system and mini grid segments. Um, the world over, really. I mean, working really hard to keep the lights on, putting customers and their needs first, 
Um, and then being part of, you know, critical response efforts like powering healthcare facilities, providing access to public information and awareness campaigns and, and things like that. Um, you know, it's been, despite a, a very hard year, you know, it, it's made me proud to, to, you know, be part of this sector and be tracking it. And, and um, you know, some companies have been doing pretty well and have seen business ticking over pretty steadily. And of course, um, some have actually seen a rise in demand and payment from their customers as they, like all of us, are sort of stuck at home more than normal. Um, but of course, there's a lot of the sectors, uh, companies, particularly some of the smaller players and some of those that were a little bit less well capitalized that, um, you know, have seen some some pretty serious issues and, you know, maybe really struggling at this point. So I think, you know, first, it's good to just acknowledge the resilience of the sector and um, that it's really stepped up to the plate in this time of crisis for for the customers and, and, and for investors as well, too, in many cases. Um, but I think what that recovery is really going to look like is, you know, of course, we'll hopefully start to see some recovery in the first or second quarter of next year, um, you know, on the economic side. And of course, you know, with vaccine news and things like that, you know, we should be able to start to put this behind us. Um, you know, there's going to be a few month delay in rolling out vaccines, particularly those that require, you know, last mile cold storage, that's going to be very difficult. Um, but I think once we start to see that recovery, what we'll find is that it's actually going to be pretty uneven. Um, there's a pretty significant difference in some of the, the standout markets that have done really well in handling COVID. And, um, you know, public support that has been met, you know, has been provided to citizens and, and met their needs. Um, and then other countries where that hasn't happened. Um, so I think that that might start to dictate, you know, where we start to see recovery first and potentially even some new market opportunities for some energy access companies. Um, but I think we'll see a rebound in consumer demand and willingness and ability to pay first and foremost from the existing customer base. Um, hopefully we'll see a lot of public sector support programs that will pick up steam um, and potentially some energy access specific support programs might be packaged with some broader public sector recovery efforts. Um, and then, of course, I think we'll see an uptick in investment again. You know, we're looking like we might be something like 15 or 20 percent down this year. We'll see how the year wraps up. Um, but, you know, we expect that to start to recover and, and pick up again. But I think there might be some choppiness there as well, because there, there will be some short term, um, you know, bridge loan repayments and the recoveries and sort of re-strategizing of some of the strategic investors. Um, as well as just kind of regaining some investor trust and getting investors comfortable, um, you know, with the commercials again and, you know, a good good picture of demand and things like that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that's kind of one of the, the things that we, of course, have something to look forward to in 2021. Um, but I think we need to just be a little bit careful about painting a broad brush over, you know, everything will just return back to normal, um, you know, right away. So I want to pick up the question of an uneven recovery. You talked about that unevenness from a country perspective. I want to uh, hear your thoughts on whether you think that recovery will be uneven based on company type, whether, you know, solar home system companies will recover differently from mini grid companies. And then maybe even more importantly, given that it's becoming, uh, I think, a hotter topic of conversation, will foreign owned companies recover more quickly than domestic ones? Um, who, as you mentioned, may perhaps be smaller, less well capitalized. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. And, you know, to take that one piece at a time, I think foreign-owned companies are definitely in a better position. Um, I mean, the economic consequences of COVID have had uh, some pretty significant impacts on currency markets in a lot of places. And I, I think that, um, you know, companies that are, are Yes, they might need to pay for a hedge, but uh, you know that's <laughs> that's that, this is the kind of time where a hedge comes in handy. Um, and we'll see a lot of those foreign-owned companies and and those that 
you know, bank and hard currency, uh, you know, having a bit of an easier time with recovery and potentially even benefiting from some of the public sector um, recovery programs in, uh, you know, hard currency markets. So, you know, there's there's likelihoods that um, public capital might be directed to companies in, in the U.S. and in Europe and in um, Japan that are operational in, um, you know, energy access markets, um, but may receive public capital um, as parts of recovery. So that, that might be, um, you know, one differentiator um, between some of the foreign-owned companies and some of the, the local-owned companies, um, you know, purely on a currency basis and the peers, purely on a, on a support basis as well. Um, I think one of the things on, on solar home systems versus mini-grids, uh, mini-grid sector has been, of course, hit by COVID, but I think, um, you know, the ability to aggregate some of that customer demand, many of these mini-grids have anchor customers. Um, of course, this has been a rough year for everybody, but um, because we're not talking about individual consumers, uh, I think that there's a bit of a differentiator there as well. Um, and the mini-grid sector has been picking up a pretty good bit of steam um, with some of the uh, the uh, recent you know, financial vehicles that have been announced. Um, you know, we've seen some pretty interested um, strategic investors um, and then some good data that's been produced around the segment that um, we expect to bring more investors in in 2021. Um, on the solar home system side, as I said, there's been some unevenness in what the uh, sort of effects of COVID have been. You know, some companies have actually seen demand increase or, you know, customers that are then purchasing, you know, TVs and mobile phones because, or radios because they're um, home a lot more than they were before, things of that nature. Um, so I think there's a little bit more opportunity for some adjacent revenue streams that um, might help pick up that recovery a little bit quicker because it's a little bit less limited just to kilowatt hours. Um, in the in the solar home system com uh, sector so far, particularly for some of the larger players. Okay, so 2021 COVID recovery front and center. What else? Yeah, so the other thing that I'm really excited about right now is the way that uh, the investment community has pivoted a little bit more into to include the CNI segment into the energy access conversation. Um, so I know that that can be a little bit. Um, you know, apropos in some ways to whether or not this counts as, as energy access or DREs or however we want to slice the segment. Um, so I know not everybody considers that to be the case, but something I've seen as sort of a third party observer of the market is that, you know, a lot of the investors who have previously been really interested in solar home systems sort of graduated to mini grids. And now a lot of those investors have graduated from mini grids to CNI. And then from the other side of the picture, there are a lot of um, folks that I've spoken to in the last, you know, eight to 12 months who have said, you know, we're really interested in off-grid renewables, you know, in some of these regions, but, um, you know, we really don't understand the, some of these technologies like mini grids or solar home systems, or, you know, we're really not comfortable with those, you know, purely on a fundamentals basis. So what other opportunities are there? Um, but I personally, in, in my conversations and in the activity that I've had this year, I've seen a pretty significant uptick in investor attention from, from frontier market investors who are really excited about the captive economics of CNI um, as, as an energy access solution, um, but primarily for, um, you know, larger scale firms um, and, and SMEs as well, too. And I think part of the reason for that is, again, there's some some similarities between uh, mini grids, you know, in the technology and the ticket size in some cases. Um, and there's also some really interesting business model um, innovations happening. The way that CNI has, ha has started to roll out, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, has looked pretty different than, um, you know, what we've seen from a traditional net metered um, or potentially even a feed-in tariff, you know, rooftop solar project in, uh, you know, in the West as an example. Um, and we might see that, uh, 
know, there's a, a revamping of the anchor customer model um, that's been talked about in the mini grid space for quite a long time. Um, some of the companies that I've spoken to are really interested in a CNI um, anchor customer with residential connections included um, that sort of drifts into mini grid category. Um, there's a lot of talk right now around um, providing other adjacent services. So this uh, drum that I beat a lot of times when it comes to value stacking on top of Pago connections, um, we're starting to see some similar thinking in the CNI segment around offering energy efficiency or LPG or, or some other sort of value add services um, that really is pushing the CNI segment to be on the leading edge of what I see as this utility transformation happening in the off-grid space where we're really going from selling kilowatt hours to being customer-centric service providers. I see that happening in the CNI market too um, as of you know, the second half of this year, which I think is really exciting. And I think the other thing is that um, investors starting to get their feet wet in frontier markets um, by starting with CNI, you know, may graduate down that scale to start looking at mini grids and start looking at solar home systems and other smaller scale solutions um, once they understand the markets and, you know, at the macro level, and then also start to understand customers a little bit better as well, too. Interesting. My question there, is, and maybe this may not be sort of within your scope, Ben, but I'll ask anyway, um, you know, if they do, if they do move down into the, the mini grid space from CNI and and start to look at home electrification uh, outside of commercial and industrial electrification, the economics don't look so good, uh, especially for those traditional investors that are looking for a lower risk profile. Um, and it certainly doesn't look good if you get into the bottom of the bottom of the pyramid, right? Uh, and the consumers who, or, or end users, however you want to describe them, uh, consumers of electricity, where they don't have a lot of disposable income and, and may never have a lot of disposable income or enough to actually afford these types of services. So is, is, are, are you saying that you think that that transformation sort of starting with CNI could eventually lead to that uh, long tail of the energy access consumer or will there still need to be some sort of massive intervention on the part of public finance to, to get to the, uh, get to the point where we leave no one behind. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a both and, right? I mean, I, I see from the private sector point of view, um, some of the conversations I've had recently have been really encouraging that, you know, we, we might start to see CNI maybe as a, a gateway drug into some of the, you know, lower tier consumption, more remote, um, more base of pyramid customers. Um, and that might mean starting with CNI projects with blue chip companies, uh, migrating to, you know, more towards SMEs and then down into mini grids and solar home systems as investors get more comfortable and as those opportunities um, both open up in new markets, you know, potentially see improved economics, things like that. Um, and then I think the other thing, too, is that, you know, by no means am I saying that this means that there, there won't be a need for, you know, massive subsidy or, or public intervention, just like we've seen for electrification efforts in every other country on Earth throughout time. Um, you know, I don't expect that that's going to look any different. I think one of the things that is going to be really interesting is if we do start to see a, a pretty significant boom in the CNI segment for captive renewables um, or captive solar in some cases, um, what that does to sort of the energy picture and the role of a utility in electrification, I think has some really interesting implications. And I don't want to sound too speculative here, but uh, something that's really exciting to me or you know, really curious to me, I guess, is that uh, you know, the, the debate that's raging in Kenya right now around 
um, CNI and, and EPRA and KPLC and, you know, what does this do to the bankability of the utility, which has already been pretty heavily eroded by, uh, you know, a pr pretty controversial rural electrification or, or um, you know, grid access program in the last mile connectivity program. Uh, so I think, you know, and this actually leads pretty well into my third trend, so maybe we can just kind of merge the conversation there. But um, the thing that I see happening next is that the off-grid and on-grid worlds are, are really starting to bump into each other uh, on the ground rather than just in talk or in, on paper. Um, and something that I think, you know, that, that comes through in a few different ways. But one of the things that, um, you know, I really see is if, if we start to consider CNI solutions as part of the energy access problem, you know, we're not just looking at residential households, but also looking at, you know, access for business, um, which is, of course, going to power that economic growth. Um, something else that we have to think about then, too, is does that change the role of a public utility um, in providing access to electricity? Does that mean that a public utility needs to be far more focused on residential connections? And is that an effective vehicle for subsidy? Um, we've seen some good and some bad examples of that. Um, and then also, you know, what does that mean for, you know, the future of grid extension as well? And, and that changes, you know, the picture for mini grid companies uh, quite significantly. So there's a lot of moving pieces there that are interrelated. Um, and that's why, you know, I think it's important for us to think about, um, you know, CNI and some of these other segments, you know, that are adjacent to residential energy access um, as really important because, you know, it's, they interact with each other, uh, you know, in quite a, at quite a few different layers. For sure. So I want to pick up on your bumping into each other analogy between utilities and private sector decentralized renewable energy companies. Uh, let's imagine that the utilities and the DRE companies are uh, on the dance floor together, and I could see two outcomes. One, they bump into each other, and it's love at first sight, and they figure out a way to work together to provide better access to electricity. The other option is that one steps on the other's toe and they uh, get into a, a bar fight. Uh, do you see that? How do you see that evolving? How do you see that dynamic? Do you see it um, in, in on the whole? Do you see it as more of a um, mutually beneficial relationship or do you think it's going to grow more antagonistic? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, and I, I think I think we're going to see a little bit of both. I, I really like this picture of, you know, love at first sight or devolving into a bar fight. And, you know, we, we have seen both. I mean, frankly, most of the markets in East Africa have, uh, you know, been less than friendly to the DRE segment. Um, and in, you know, I don't want to make sort of broad regional generalizations here, but there are a few standout markets in, in West Africa, like Togo, Nigeria and, and Cote d'Ivoire that um, have sort of welcomed the segment with open arms. And, you know, we, we see a lot of pictures of CEOs of some of the, the leading DRE companies with country presidents. And I mean, there, there's, it's just a it's just a totally different situation. Um, and I think that that does kind of drill down into a bit more of an important question, which is, you know, when these things bump into each other, which they already are starting to do and will inevitably continue, um, you know, what what is the most productive outcome for both parties? And I think there's, you know, a lot of the leading voices in the mini grid segment who I really respect, you know, will say, well, we want to compete with the mini grid. We, we want our mini grids to compete with the utility. Um, we're competing for, for quality of service. We're competing for costs. Um, and we want to sort of make them better, right? Um, and then there's the other side of that coin, which says, you know, but yeah, if they don't tell us, uh, you know, if, if we don't have transparent grid extension planning, if we don't have transparency around tariff increases that are coming, if in markets with harmonized tariff requirements, you know, this is a, this is a really sector killing um, type of, you know, 
flat-footedness, if you will, to maybe keep with your analogy there. Um, so I think there's I think there's both that we're going to see. And the thing that I'm really interested in is, you know, where will we start to see some really great examples of public utilities that are in dire straits themselves in most cases, um, you know, sort of welcoming some competition in a way that both that improves both sectors um, and also, you know, improves the financials of both sectors. Um, and I think one of the ways that we can do that is through integrated planning, right? So we're the, some of the, the future grid technologies that we'll see, you know, we're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, digitization, we're going to see a lot of grid extension, um, and some cost reductions, both on the generation side, and um, hopefully on the transmission side and distribution side, but but it looks like in general, most in most cases, those costs actually tick up over time. Um, so get just getting everybody on the same page, you know, to, to speak in plain language, um, something that will make a big difference is, you know, let's just be clear and let's carve up the market here um, and let's let's allow both public and private capital to um, find their appropriate homes. Um, there's need for subsidy in the DRE segment. There's need for public capital for infrastructure at the large scale. Um, and then there's also space for private capital in the DRE space, um, both on the, the debt and the equity side. And then, of course, with the dramatic renew, uh, reduction, uh, excuse me, cost reductions in um, utility scale renewables as well. Um, you know, there's plenty of room for private capital on the IPP side as well. So I think, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, we can collaborate or we can compete and both can be healthy. But I think the thing that's really important is just making sure we, we're clear on how, how large is the true market for each of these technologies and for each of these segments and each of these players. Um, because if we make some assumptions that are wrong there, um, you know, that leads to some pretty unfortunate outcomes for both sectors. You know, the investors on the DRE side are, are going to flee. Um, and utilities are frankly going to see, you know, much of their rate base, you know, their, their most profitable, most bankable customers are going to either defect from the grid or, um, you know, cease to pay entirely, right? And then we'll see some utility death spiral um, conversations crop up. And, you know, we'll, there, there's a lot of cascading effects there that I think um, both parties would benefit from, you know, integrated electrification planning, you know, ideally using, you know, some of these really cool new tools that have come out that are, are focused on not just quantifying supply or doing least cost analysis, which is which is important, but kind of only has one half of the puzzle. But the other side, which is really focused on understanding electricity demand and how do we quantify that and forecast its growth over time so that when we're talking about least cost, we really apply the appropriate solution to each customer and to their needs. Um, because what we've seen a lot in some of the past integrated electrification plans that have been purely focused on least cost analysis is that uh, you know, they skew really heavily towards solar home systems because it's the cheapest solution, uh, but they're not necessarily the appropriate solution in every case. Um, so there's a lot of really great efforts that are, are um, you know, really sophisticated on the data side um, that have started to answer those questions. And that's something that's personally really exciting to me because I think that as these two worlds kind of start to collide um, or these two dancers meet on the dance floor, um, there's a chance for you know, some really, really good symbiosis. And there's also some really good, you know, we, we could start to see some glass break on the floor too. So, um, you know, I think really it's, it's just important to get everybody on the same page and to make sure that, um, you know, we're clear on whose market is what and, and wh where capital can be parked. Absolutely, Ben. Uh, I guess one one uh, reflection upon that um, is that, yes, integrated energy planning is critical. And, and obviously, we believe that strongly and it informs our, our future of the utility uh, work in Uganda, and as well as partners like Conexa and what they're doing in Nigeria. But I will say that planning is is uh, is only as good as the data it's based on. And I think what we're starting to realize is that 
uh, a lot of the data, or at least some of the data, well, first of all, we, we lack, still lack a huge amount of data, but even the data that we do have that tracks access and energy poverty, I think there's some serious questions around those indicators and how they're measured. So, you know, planning has to be based on good data, otherwise it's garbage in, garbage out. And that's what the one concern I have, which is that you have a lot of consultants running around the energy access space who have been for many years now in informing that planning, and they are not necessarily, uh, A, qualified to do that, and B, using it uh, or basing it on, on quality data. So just a, a reflection uh, on your comment. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And, and like I said, I think there's some really exciting new efforts like the e-guide effort, um, you know, what Odyssey is doing and Atlas AI. And, uh, you know, there's there's quite a few others that I'm not thinking of right now. But um, a lot of these companies that are or, or, you know, academic efforts even that are purely focused on um, providing high resolution quality data. Um, you know, the TFE Energy um, Vita Analytics is another great example, um, you know, providing quality granular GIS-based data, both on the supply side and the demand side, um, to really map the market. Um, I am super excited by a lot of what those companies are doing, and um, I think it's going to completely change the game, not just for integrated planning, but also for, you know, company strategy as well. Um, you know, a lot of the SHS and mini-grid companies you know, are relying on some pretty anecdotal information uh, when they choose to enter, you know, new new counties or new states, you know, depending on where you are. And, um, you know, having really good granular survey data, 60 decibels is another great example um, where we need to, the other thing that we, was going to be really interesting for somebody like me is thinking about, you know, okay, how do we start to stack some of that data um, to, to put data layers on the same map? Um, and, uh, you know, what does that mean for, for some of the, you know, the regulators when it comes to integrated planning, but also for, um, you know, some of the private companies when determining their strategy. Yeah, for sure. Good. So we got a couple minutes left. Um, you've gone through some great, uh, thoughts about, you know, your top three things to look out for in 2021. Any, uh, any last other items that you'd throw into a lightning round to, to wrap up our, our discussion? Yeah, I mean, we've we've done a good bit of wide-ranging research this year. I think just to kind of summarize some of the other things I've been thinking about, um, I, I'm really excited or I'm really interested in uh, mini-grid policy these days. I think there's, you know, in some cases it gets a bad rap and, um, you know, in, in many markets that's very justified. But um, I, I think, you know, we, we've done a pretty detailed look at the mini-grid policy landscape. And what we found is that, yes, in general, most markets are coming short. But I think one of the bigger findings that we arrived at is that there's there's a lot of uh, talking past each other from some of the stakeholders um, in the creation and, um, you know, iteration of mini grid policy. Uh, so one of the things that we found is that, you know, a lot of these players just simply aren't reading from the same sheet of music or, or maybe don't even really know what they want. Um, and that has made formulating an ideal mini grid policy, uh, you know, almost an impossible ask. Um, and then the other thing, of course, is that the sector has a long way to go in maturity. So, uh, what is an ideal mini grid policy today? Even if we could all know what we what we want and could get it into into law, um, that's going to change over time. Um, so Uganda is a great example because they have um, already iterated their second version of the mini grid policy at the national level, and um, you know we we see that at, you know in our our scoring uh, to kind of evaluate these policies next to each other, you know you can see the policy actually jumps up a good bit um, because they did make some improvements, and it's not perfect, but um, I think that's the other thing is that. You know, maybe on a on a softer note, um, you know, yes, we need to define our roles and carve up the market a little bit and be really clear um, and transparent for 
both for private and public players to make sure that capital is being allocated efficiently, especially because we have so much underinvestment in the segment. But I think the other thing too is that, you know, yes, we don't have a lot of time, but iterating some of these policy improvements, some of these market improvements, some of these models on integrated planning, um, I think that's something else that, you know, we're this sector is, is old enough now that we can start to get to some version twos of some conversations. Um, and I think that that is something we'll see a lot in the next few years and something I'm really excited about. And the mini grid policy area in particular, I think we're going to see some really strong iterations and then also some, some, frankly, some copycats, right? I mean, because for example, the Nigerian policy is, is really excellent, really bankable, and you know, the market is, is really growing. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot of markets, you know, adapt and, and take a lot of those lessons um, and open up some new new mini grid markets that you know, currently don't have the policy support that they need. Um, another thing, of course, is going to be subsidy. Um, of course, we thinking about the efficient allocation of subsidy, um, mini grid programs, uh, support programs sort of have a very interesting conundrum of do we subsidize all players? Do we subsidize only last mile players? Can we do them differently? And I think there's, you know, when we're thinking about mini grid support, we, we want to think about uh, what does it mean for us to A, create a, a commercially viable and bankable sector, and then B, meet the last mile need. Um, and how do we use subsidy and public support in order to be able to achieve both of those outcomes? Um, I think that's a question that, uh, you know, the mini grid support programs and, and, and policymakers are going to need to sort of digest a lot over the next year or two. Um, and then I think just the last thing very quickly is uh, the, the investment landscape. So that's something else that I spend a lot of time thinking about and looking at. Um, we, we've seen, you know, like I said, we'll be about 15 or 20 percent down this year. I'll, we'll have some final numbers you know, early next year. Um, but I, I think in general, we've been really encouraged by the continued deal flow in the energy access segment, despite um, everything that's happened this year. Um, there has been some good grant support, um, some good catalytic financing programs on the relief side. Of course, there should be much more, um, but there's some really admirable efforts on that front as well. Um, but I think the other thing that, um, you know, is really going to start to come through on the investment side is that uh, infra investors are going to take a second look at the space. I mean, there's two, three years ago, you know, my understanding is that we had a pretty significant look from from the infra capital sector and then said, yeah, you know, this isn't really, this doesn't really fit our risk return profile. Um, and I think as we start to see some efforts like what CrossBoundary has been doing and portfolios and securitization and things like that, um, we'll start to see some new forms of capital kind of looking at the corner of their eye at, at some of the returns that are coming out of this segment. Um, and that's few and far between and we need to be, you know, measured about what we say about that. But I think, um, you know, some new forms of capital will, will maybe take a second look at the space, you know, maybe at the end of next year, or the beginning of the year following once we kind of back on track from COVID. Are you basing that on some top secret conversations you've had, Ben? Uh, if I told you that, I'm afraid I'd have to, uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, we've had some very interesting chats as of late. Just leave it there. Good, good. Well, I think it's official after this last uh, 30 minutes, Ben, that you are now a official policy wonk slash energy access geek. Uh, and I'm just grateful for uh, all the work you're doing. Um, appreciate your, your time. And, and please give a reminder to our listeners where to find out more uh, of the to learn more about the great information you're producing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, uh, I love being called a wonk. That's a that's high praise. So thank you very much. And um, 
appreciate that. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm uh, tweeting out and putting on LinkedIn most of the things that we produce, but also we, we try to publish as many sort of summaries of our research on green tech media as possible. And of course, you know, for some of the larger players in the space, if you're interested in kind of getting access to some of the research, you know, feel free to, to reach out to me or check out the, the WoodMac website. But um, yeah, we're trying to you know, provide as much data um, in a very sort of wise or diligent way to the, to the sector that, that we can, you know, we're trying to provide data sets and things like that that don't currently exist. So um, that's kind of been my focus is, you know, how can we be most sort of valuable to, um, you know, providing visibility into this market. So, yeah, and no, I appreciate you asking about that and hopefully more, more good stuff to come next year. Indeed. All right, Ben. Well, thanks again. Thanks, Willie. Thanks everyone for listening. A reminder that you can find a wealth of sector news analysis and data on our website, powerfar.org, as well as our platform for energy access knowledge, which we refer to as PEAK. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter and other updates. And if you feel like making a tax-deductible contribution to Powerfall, you can do so from our homepage. Speak with you soon on the next episode of Powerfall.